from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Today's guest is Amna Akbar, an associate professor of law at Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University. Her scholarship focuses on social movements and law reform. Outside of the classroom, Amna is involved with organizing in Ohio and around the United States. It's my pleasure to welcome her to the show. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. One of the critical aspects of your practice is the ability to think through how we should reimagine the law from the standpoint of the marginalized communities that you work with and that are part of your both your pedagogy and your practice. And one of the points you make is that radical law practice and theories can be enhanced by studying the policy positions and theories of groups such as the Movement for Black Lives and other activist movements of our time. What do you mean by that? And what are some of the aspects that you find particularly compelling? Well, one of my main contentions in my work of late is precisely that to engage in any form of radical law practice or law scholarship, that lawyers and legal academics should be paying attention to the ways that today's social movements are engaging institutions and questions of law, whether that be protesting legal institutions, as we saw all over the country in the wake of the Ferguson Rebellion and Darren Wilson's killing of Michael Brown. So the various die-ins and at courthouses, for example, or rallies waiting for prosecutors to make announcements about whether or not they would indict a particular police officer for a particular killing of a black person in the country. So paying attention to the sites of contestation, in particular when there are institutions of law, and the kinds of narratives that are coming out in those protests. And then at the same time, to pay attention to the kind of other contexts in which today's social movements, protests, and kind of more organic rebellions are talking about law both as a tool and system of violence against which they're fighting and as a tool for liberation or at least some mode of, let's say, building power to fight for the larger vision of the world that these movements are interested in winning. So we know that law... And of course, in the traditional form, I'm thinking of policing and criminal prosecutions, but you can also think of immigration, detention and deportation, evictions and more, that the law is used directly as a tool of violence or as a way to paper over or justify legitimate modes of you know, extraction, expropriation, and different forms of state violence. And so in that sense, I think today's movements and community organizers are engaging law. And so mindful of how, because of the way our communities are under threat through vehicles of law or systems of law, that we need to be able to use law defensively to protect and work in solidarity with people who are under its attack. And at the same time, depending on which kind of movements and organizations, organizers you're talking about, I would say at this point, it feels like a fairly large subset of those of organizations and organizers around the country are also using law as a tool 
to articulate the kind of world that they want to live in and the kind of world that they're fighting for. So you can see that at a more micro level in local campaigns around the country for things like, for example, counselors, not cops. But then you can also see that on a more macro level through law reform proposals and policy platforms that are much more macro, for example, the Green New Deal or the Vision for Black Lives. So how does the study of the histories of federal colonialism or the state trade useful for helping to think about both the type of reimagining of the law and making it both a defensive and positive contributor to the struggles of marginalized communities? Well, one of the things I'm interested in, and in some sense, I think it's particular to my discipline, although I think it's probably, I hope, more broadly useful as well, is just to kind of take seriously the epistemological universes and the intellectual kind of histories that the movements that I'm studying in and feel in solidarity with or I'm practicing solidarity with, to kind of take those seriously and use those as uh, entry points into the problems and issues of the day and how to fight them. And so, you know, when I first started working with organizers here in Columbus who kind of ramped up their organizing as the whole country was getting more ramped up in 2014 and 2015 around Ferguson and police killings, I noticed that in those protests that I was attending and that I was reading about, that there was often an invocation of the history of enslavement and the Atlantic slave trade. And when I would go to organizing meetings, there was a keen kind of understanding and active study of the black freedom struggle and the civil rights movement in a much more deep way than what I had become accustomed to among lawyers in in the legal academy more broadly. I mean, we certainly have a growing and important number of legal historians who are doing incredible work on all of these questions. But historically, you know, there is not that deep of a commitment in law to exploring the complex history of the country, because we are often celebrating the founders and the Constitution in one breath, which makes it hard then to look at the more complicated histories of enslavement, settler colonialism, the the violence that founds the country, the expropriation, exploitation. And so because these movements are, you know, and again, I'm thinking about the movement for Black Lives, the Sunrise Movement, and all the various kind of movement organizations that have sprung up in the last several years, and the ones who have been around for much longer, because they are trying to respond to these systems at scale, which is to say they're not just talking about police violence or a particular corporation polluting a particular river. They're talking about capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and settler colonialism. And so because the histories of these systems are important to understanding how they function. They're very much at the center of the the narratives that these movements are kind of putting out, studying, taking seriously, and then those feed into the kinds of solutions, I would say, that they're putting forward in the sense that because they see the problems not as discrete but structural, not as contemporary but historical, they are in different ways modeling and experimenting with organizing practice as a way to build a different world, undo or and heal from these various histories and really fight for a radical different or a radical new future rather. One of the ways that you discuss some of the structural aspects of oppression, to be blunt, 
is you talk about intersectional inequality. How does that concept help us think through the building of power in these communities that are struggling for power? Yeah, I mean, I think that is an interesting and important challenge. So the organizing and kind of the movement infrastructure that I've probably spent the most time both studying and working alongside is the movement for Black lives. And from the beginning with Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza, you know, they were talking about, you know, Charlene Carruthers and more. There's always been an emphasis on being a Black, queer, femme-led intersectional movement. And if you look at the vision for Black lives in its kind of principles or overarching commitments, it talks about how one of the principles they adopted in developing their policy platform is to consistently ask themselves how the policies they were advancing would impact the most marginalized Black people, so poor Black people, incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, immigrant, queer, trans, and so on. And so in that sense, you kind of see an intersectional praxis in terms of, you know, making sure that the policy platform reflects the varied forms of intersectional oppression that people live and are struggling with within, for example, the Black community. And you also see, you know, kind of striving in the platform in important ways to be intersectional in thinking about, you know, solidarity with Native and Indigenous people and uh, and in thinking in an internationalist sense in terms of calling for demilitarization around the world. So I think when you look at the policy platforms, There's a lot of resonance between a commitment to multiracial solidarity, gender justice, kind of anti-capitalist critique, and so on. And you continue to see that. So the Vision for Black Lives came out in 2016, but you continue to see that in your platform. So for example, the Red Nation, which is a left indigenous organization, has started to put out a series of principles of unity and policy platform-like things. And you see in the most recent thing they released a couple of weeks ago that they're adopting the call for abolition and they're adding their own dimensions to it. So, for example, it's the first policy platform that I've seen that in its call for abolition is also calling for the abolition of the child welfare system and rooting that call in the history of removing indigenous children from their homes uh, through these kinds of processes historically in the United States. And so at the level of articulating policies and visions, I think there's a lot of intersectionality. And I think there is an attempt to practice intersectionality in local movement contexts as well, whether that's adopting transformative or restorative justice processes that don't rely on the police when there's, for example, concern about sexual assault within an organization, or it's about being mindful about who's in leadership and for how long and how power runs through a particular organization. But I also think intersectional practice, especially when 
you move beyond two categories, so race and class or race and gender, and you want to think in a way that many of these movements are thinking about race, class, and gender, patriarchy, capitalism, and white supremacy, you know, colonialism and enslavement, thinking about those different processes at the same time can also be pretty difficult to hold. And so I think we're kind of witnessing, in a, in a way that's probably similar to something that was happening in the 60s and 70s, but is also probably distinct, you know, kind of an attempt to flex muscles in new ways. And, you know, we'll see where that takes us. I would argue that the organizations that you've mentioned and the uh social movements of this period in general are doing in in a far more, I think, ambitious way than the Black Power movement and similar movements of the 60s and 70s. And the reason I say that is that many of these organizations were, if not in theory, certainly in practice, fairly to very misogynist and patriarchal and often openly homophobic. So it is extremely difficult to figure out how to do, to, to tackle all these systems of domination in theory and practice, but I think the attempt is far broader than it has been in the past. I think the experimentation that's being done in practice is what we're, we're going to learn a lot. And I think even some of the communities that we're talking about there's still a very dominant liberal narrative that's still, I think, fairly hegemonic. And one example that you write about is the way that the Justice Department under Obama viewed and wrote about Ferguson compared to the way that, for example, the Moon for Black Lives and the Vision for Black Lives analyzed Ferguson. What are some of the differences between, let's say, the, the DOJ, liberal DOJ's analysis of the Ferguson oppression and resistance in Ferguson and the way that some of these organizations are thinking through the same phenomena. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really fascinating. One of the things that, you know, we saw in the DOJ Ferguson and Baltimore reports, and in some sense, we continue to see since then in various forms is kind of this breaking of a liberal kind of consensus around all sorts of social problems, whether it's police violence or the environment, in part because the violence of these systems, so the police or capitalism has become clear, both because of organizing and because of some, you know, more kind of organic modes of kind of just seeing the violence of these systems in people's day-to-day lives is becoming undeniable in a way that old modes of analysis aren't working. So the DOJ Ferguson and Baltimore reports, when I really dug into them and read them closely, I was really profoundly impressed by how in some sense they took police violence very seriously. You didn't get a traditional narrative about individual bad apples or an exclusive focus on raw displays of physical power, for example. Both of the reports, I think, do a really good job in a way that's really instructive and important, and even in some ways could be a model for thinking about how to document the systemic, multivaried nature of police violence. So in the DOJ's Ferguson report, you know, the DOJ talks about not just the various ways that police brutalize and humiliate the Black people of Ferguson, 
by stopping, arresting, and imposing different forms of violence for all sorts of trivial manners like crossing the street or talking back to a cop. The report does a great job of documenting those kinds of forms of violence, but then it also famously documented you know, a system of fines and fees where the local government was instructing the courts and the police to target and ticket poor black residents of Ferguson as a way to make up shortfalls for, you know, tax revenues and so on. And similarly, the Baltimore report does a great job of kind of documenting how the Baltimore police disproportionately focus their energy on policing and brutalizing the poor poor black neighborhoods of Baltimore. And they talk about something that, you know, many of us no, but is very rarely confronted in liberal accounts of the police or the state, which is to say that different people have very different experiences of the state. So in the report, they talk about how basically wealthy white people in Baltimore feel that the police is respectful and responsive and timely in their providing of services to their communities. And the poor black people that the DOJ talked to um, you know, say essentially the opposite, that the police don't respond, they aren't timely, and when they do respond, they're completely unhelpful. And so you see the kind of different faces of the state that is, or that are very central to kind of its maintenance and the work that it does, that's kind of hard to imagine or contemplate or really see in liberal discourse because, you know, the idea that the state is relatively fair and neutral and trying to do the best for everyone is very dominant. When you look at those reports and you look at the movement accounts about police, which also tend to be, you know, which are structural in the sense that they grapple with how police violence is routine and takes many forms. So it's not just police killings, but it's different forms of police brutality and extraction and exploitation, gentrification, and so on. You see a lot of synergies in those accounts. But where the distinction comes up, and it's significant and continues to be significant, is that in a liberal account of police violence, even if because of Black Lives Matter and the rebellions in Baltimore and Ferguson and all the devastating video footage of police killings of Black people that we have seen in the last several years, it's impossible to kind of hold on to the belief that the police, you know, that the problem of police violence and anti-Black violence in particular is singular. It becomes very hard then to hold on to this kind of idea of the police as neutral or relatively fair, treating everyone the same. But because in the DOJ reports and in liberal accounts more generally, there continues to be an ideological commitment in the status quo and in keeping things relatively the same in terms of the structure and modes of statecraft. Once the DOJ reports get to the question of reforms, they kind of revert back to all of the things that you know we've heard people talking about for decades and have been central to kind of the professionalization discourse of the police in the late 20th century and the 21st century. So the DOJ talks about training and diversity, trying to enact better supervision and policies without really grappling with the contradiction or the central aspect of police is violence. 
And so how you can train away or hire enough diverse police officers to kind of seriously mitigate that violence when that's when they're tasked with doing is a contradiction that the report doesn't and can't deal with, neither would the reports do. Whereas in the Vision for Black Lives and increasingly in the abolitionist, because of the abolitionist turn in organizing around the country, when you look at movement accounts or left organizing campaigns, um, you see similar sorts of critiques of the police sharpen, no doubt, or sharper, no doubt. But then you see an abolitionist vision in terms of the reforms they're pushing for. So rather than calling for further investments in police through things like diversity training or body cams, these movements, organizations, and campaigns around the country are calling for divestment, delegitimization, redirection of resources. And so that's how you land at these demands like counselors, not cops. Philosopher uh, Tommy Shelby in his book, Dark Gizzles, argues that, I agree with this aspect of the book, that status quo bias is endemic to both the social sciences, philosophy, as well as, as you describe, legal studies as well. And it, there's no way to overcome institutional oppression as long as status quo bias remains the norm. That's often what students in law school graduate programs and social sciences are taught. But you say that one of the things that's changed in the interactions among students is having them be engaged with activists. How has that change the conversation in classes? I think one of the really fascinating things happening in law schools right now is, I mean, and in some sense it's happening across the country, right, is that you have a generational divide between students and faculty. And so, you know, and in some sense students are, you know, living in the world and have their finger on the temperature of the country in a way that almost seems slightly sharper than many of us faculty. And so in the article I wrote toward a radical imagination of law, which now came out a couple of years ago, I wrote about how bringing organizers to my classroom, specifically to a class I was teaching on law and social movements, really changed the nature of the conversation that we were having in the classroom because a lot of our readings were focused on the past, on the civil rights struggle, and the students felt the questions were fairly academic. So this was back in 2014, 2015, 2016, and they just couldn't really imagine the relevance of those questions for today. Um, and so having James Hayes, who's a local organizer here in Columbus, come to the classroom and talk to my students about the organizing he was doing locally and at the national level really reflected back to them the ongoing kind of relevance of the history of the civil rights movement, the Black freedom struggle, and more, because it made clear to them in a way that I don't know was clear at that time in general, that organizing social movement, contestation, has really kind of re-emerged as a central part of our political discourse and process because now um, we've been living in a sustained period of more public and contestation-oriented social movement activity. And so now, whereas then I kind of felt like bringing the organizer to class did some major disruption to the way but that my students were thinking, I now find that I have more students who walk in the door even at a law school in the Midwest, that come in identifying as an abolitionist or as anti-capitalist or socialist than 
I ever have. And granted, the numbers are not big, but the fact that there are numbers at all is a pretty big deal. I remember the first time I had a student come to my office and tell me that she was a socialist, which was a couple of years ago now. I mean, I played it cool, <laughs> but my jaw went to the ground because the fact, you know, just kind of spoke to the changing times that I could have a student who in her first year would feel comfortable coming to a faculty member's office. I think it was her first time in my office and sharing that information, you know, it was just profoundly, to me, spoke to the potential emergence of a profoundly kind of different time that we were living in. I still think that law, like many other disciplines, because it has its own modes of, well, it has its own kind of epistemology. But when students are in school and they're tasked with reading law review articles, case books and cases, they do start to get a view of the world that is flattened in a particular way. And so when I bring someone who's directly impacted by mass criminalization or an organizer to the class, it still is disruptive. But I think the students are much more kind of aware of many of these issues. It feels that way now than they were when I started teaching the class. And of course, some of this goes back to what we were talking about before, which is that, you know, with the election of Trump, there's kind of feels to me in some sense, a crisis of among white liberals and white liberalism in a way that some people are, you know, kind of doubling down. But I think many people in particular, young people are asking seems to me anyways, deeper, harder questions. And because of that, you know, they're also have grown up in a time of war, in a time of crushing debt, in a time of inadequate kind of job opportunity or the capacity to make a living wage. You know, they're also connecting the dots between their lived experience, even as white people in this country that have a decent amount of privilege with all of the other questions and contradictions that are coming up in the Trump era about, you know, the way the United States relates to its own people and the way that the United States relates to people around the world. I would add to that, and you write about this, of course, is and how the United States and the capitalist system more generally relates to the world itself, as we see in Australia and elsewhere, the, the growing catastrophes generated by endless accumulation. As you know, I sit at a university that's the home of law and economics. What are some of the ideological commitments, in addition to status quo bias, that have to be challenged in the legal community and in our disciplines more generally? I mean, law and economics certainly has, you know, a death grip on law in a way. Um, you know, questions of efficiency, the centrality and righteousness of the market are all very central to, you know, what we think of now when it comes to legal thinking, whether that's in the form of legal scholarship or in the form of you know, the kinds of arguments that lawyers are making in courts, because they're the kind of arguments that judges expect and that might win a particular outcome for your client. But in law, as in other disciplines, we're also going through a process, like our students are in a sense, of revisiting some of those tendencies within our scholarship and our teaching and how to kind of revisiting some of those questions and then considering new approaches. And so, for example, you know, we are also having conversations about race and capitalism and law now within legal spaces. And there is this project at Yale, the Law and Political Economy Project, which is trying to create new space for law scholars who want to ask the questions about the relationship between the law and political economy, that want to denaturalize law and economics, that want to think about radical social movements. And so there is also kind of a growing effort to 
diversify the ideological space in law and create more space for rigorous left thinking in a way that's rooted in, you know, traditions of left thinking and more interdisciplinary and so on. I mean, one of my core kind of interests that I feel fairly inept at tackling, but I'm trying to work on it in part through conversations with people like you, Michael, as well as other law scholars who are interested in these questions, is this relationship between law and capitalism, because capitalism in some sense is entirely absent as an explicit object of inquiry within legal scholarship. In critical legal studies of the 70s and 80s, you know, there was some discourse and study around questions of capitalism at that time. But, you know, with the exception of the work that's happening in the law and political economy space, which is significant and important, most of what critical legal studies is remembered for in law anyways, it's is not its question about class relations or capitalism, but more it's more kind of postmodernist critique of law in the sense of law being indeterminate and adaptable to kind of whatever end you so choose that it's not objective, but ratifies status quo relations rendered in a kind of abstract way. So with, you know, the way that it's remembered is not very particularized to class relations let alone what critical race theory and feminist scholars then later kind of pushed back on in terms of the absence of questions of race and gender in critical legal studies. So I do think there is growing interest and work and continues to be a lot of work we need to do to kind of think about what's the contribution of legal scholars and thinking about the relationship between law and capitalism. Because another really interesting thing is that, of course, like across disciplines now, you probably have a better sense of this than I do, but to me, it feels like in the last 10 years, it seems increasingly that people in all sorts of disciplines are very focused on questions of law. And so to the extent that uh, questions of racial capitalism are being studied in disciplines where questions of law are very present, whether it's American studies or history or political science to some extent, you know, that raises for me a question of, you know, in a sense, like what work should someone like me be doing a legal scholar when there's so much great work on questions of law and capitalism outside of the discipline, but there's really still just a little inkling within the discipline itself. So what are the kinds of work we need to be doing internally within legal scholarship and in the legal space to kind of equip our students to fight and take on these systems and work alongside the movements that are fighting these systems to push deeper lines of inquiry within the discipline, but then also contribute to the kind of broader conversation that's happening in the academy in the world because at the end of the day it's not the discipline of law in a sense where my primary commitments are um, i'm interested in law and its relationship to questions of transformation and justice and so you know what are the conversations we need to be having writ large about these questions and you know how how can i or how can legal scholars more generally contribute in a productive way is one of my key driving questions right now one of the ways that some of us have been trying to think through these questions is that with is with an insistence that we brought in the conversation. Now, for a lot of us, and I think I've been guilty of this to some degree, is it's often this moving out our disciplines. And I think that's absolutely necessary. And I think it's this time of conversation has been enriched because of that. But it's also I think we have we have to relearn, and this is something that's central to your work, we learn a lesson that a lot of us knew long time ago and have forgotten, which is that we should be learning from 
not necessarily other academics, but people are actually doing the type of transformative work in communities around this country and globally. In that context, can you talk about what lessons can be learned from an organization like Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles? So Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles, I mean, they first came on my radar because I met an organizer from there at some convening I was at. And I should say, I'm not an expert on YJC. I don't live in California and I haven't worked with them on any sustained basis. And like a lot of the serious organizing shops around the country, they don't have a massive web presence. But the organizer I met many years ago caught my attention because her political analysis was really sharp. And I remember, for example, she was the first person I met who used the term houseless instead of homeless. And I really found that like it kind of agitated me or disrupted me in a way when she used that term. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And in particular, when I'm in community with other black and brown people, or in this case, an, a white organizer, but other organizers, and they use a term that kind of jars me, you know, I tend to want to think hard about what is it that's jarring about that term and why might that, you know, that kind of dislocation, you know, what can I learn from that? And so I ended up thinking a lot about, you know, what it means when we call someone homeless and how people who, you know, may not have a stable place to live still have homes in that home is more than a physical place. But of course, not having a house or a regular place to live is a really important material need that all people should have met. But anyways, that was when I first met them and kind of became intrigued because this organizer was just, you know, really invested clearly in shifting not just the material world, but thinking sharply about how to use, you know, how the ideology of the world that we live in and how to disrupt that so that we can ask new questions. So then I started to pay attention to YJC and they were one of the first organizations that I know or that I noticed that were making these calls for what we might think of now as invest, divest, right? So in the Vision for Black Lives, among the six kind of meta demands in that policy platform is Invest Divest, which has now, you know, in some sense has become the most popular kind of framework to come out of that platform. So it's the idea that, that let's divest from the carceral state and maybe even the larger military imperial state, right? So let's take money out of prisons, police, military, military bases, and so on. And let's invest that money in our communities and their material needs. So housing and employment, education and healthcare. And YJC before the Vision for Black Lives came out and before this became a popularized demand that kind of has taken hold all over the country at this point, YJC was running different campaigns that in LA County, I saw versions of the campaign where they were calling for 1% of the law enforcement budget in LA County and other places, 5% of the law enforcement budget, regardless, some small percentage of the law enforcement budget, they were calling for it to instead be reinvested in youth services, a youth center, job training. And at the time, I don't think I quite, when I first saw it, I don't think I quite understood the abolitionist kind of orientation of these demands. But there's also one of the calls for investment within their broader campaign was to invest money in training youth in nonviolent conflict resolution, which again, at the time, I didn't kind of recognize what it was. But now that I think back on it, you know, it was an articulation of 
one of the many powerful critiques of abolitionist praxis and organizing, which is that interpersonal harm is ubiquitous and unavoidable, calling the police for that harm or calling on the system of the prison to address that never really addresses the violence for the people involved and doesn't address it in a way that kind of decreases its hold on society so that we have to kind of create new mechanisms for dealing with interpersonal harm, for healing each other and ourselves and so on. And so YJC, I think, through that campaign really provides a kind of model for a lot of the kinds of campaigns we see all over the country now for divesting from the carceral state and investing in other forms of, you know, community programming or the welfare state, depending on how you think about it and who's making the demand. One of the directions that is becoming central to your work, of course, is abolition. What did you mean when you speak of the abolitionist ethic? That specific phrase is something that another legal scholar who's written a lot about abolition, Allegra McLeod, talks about in an article she published, I think in 2015 in the UCLA Law Review called Abolition and Grounded Justice, which was the first piece to be published in a law review, a full length piece to take on the question of abolition. And in that piece, Allegra talks about how, you know, a lot of times when people hear the term abolition, and she was speaking specifically to law scholars, but I think it's true more broadly. It causes a kind of, you know, mental freak out because people think that, you know, you're talking about the immediate closing of prison doors and that people, you know, can't contemplate that. And it's such a kind of fundamental and complete overturning of our how our social, political, economic life is organized that, you know, causes a freak out in people. And I think that, I mean, we could talk about this in a minute, that in itself is kind of telling about the stranglehold the prison has on our imagination and how our lives are actually organized in relation to each other. But she introduces this concept of the abolitionist ethic to say, you know, kind of introduce this idea that abolitionists, I mean, some of them may be calling for the immediate closing of prison doors, but generally that's that's not, because abolitionists and abolitionist praxis is very much rooted, I would say, in organizing communities and running campaigns for concrete and specific changes, that really people are talking about modes of and ways of shrinking the carceral state diverting resources away from prisons and police and military to other modes of organizing our political, economic, and social life, denaturalizing prisons and police as a way to deal with what are fundamentally political, economic, and social problems, and thinking about kind of that hold that the carceral state has on our imagination so that we can start to think about, tinker with, experiment with different modes of responding to those same social problems. So that's, I think that's what the phrase was talking about, or what Allegra was talking about in that article. There is, you know, in some sense, she's tracking this conversation, which I'm very interested in, and have written about and hope to continue to write about, including in a paper I have been working on for a while with Marbury Staley Butts, who was involved in drafting the vision for Black Lives, is this distinction that between reformist reforms and non-reformist reforms, which 
is a distinction that historically comes out of socialist debate on reform and revolution. But in the more contemporary context, it's being deployed still in those ways, but also by people in the abolitionist space who talk about reformist and non-reformist reforms or reformist reforms and transformative reforms as a way to think about how to use law reform or whether it's possible to use law reform um, as a tool to fundamentally change our political, economic, and social system. Rachel Hertzing, who's one of the founders of Critical Resistance and now works at the Center for Political Education in Oakland, um, she talks about how the term reform just means a change. And so when we call something a reform, it doesn't mean we should automatically believe in it or put our weight behind it. We tend to think of that term as in itself something positive, but that we need to ask, what is the work that that reform is doing? Is it delegitimating the current political, economic, social structure, the carceral state? Is it making it easier or harder for that our current status quo system to reproduce itself? Is it empowering our communities to fight back and build our movements for transformation and so on? And so I think these questions are also circulating in movement spaces in ways that are really important for, you know, scholars and just people in general who are interested in understanding what these movements are doing and working alongside them to understand. One of the key aspects to that work, I think, to be able to transformative movements is something that we're beginning to see, which is presenting an alternative vision of how we can live our lives together, that there are alternatives to the carceral state, there are alternatives to predatory capitalism. And that will help people get out of the ideological ruts we've been in for the past several decades. This is one of the reasons why the law reform question has become so interesting to me, because as someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, and then graduated from law school in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, the main way that I saw liberals and progressives kind of using the law as a tool for change was through litigation. And litigation has all sorts of problems in terms of its capacity to kind of enact transformative change or non-reformist reforms because of the very mode in which it operates, plaintiff versus defendant, um, the rules around standing and who can bring a lawsuit and the kinds of relief that judges can offer. And now, of course, litigation can be used as a tool alongside and with movements in ways that I think is more productive and important, but that's not how it's traditionally done. And definitely in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, because we were, you know, in decades of left retreat or and crushing and, you know, just kind of not as active as we are now. I mean, I had chosen to become a lawyer and was a practicing lawyer for a little while. And I did different modes of public interest practice. So I worked at a legal services office in Queens in New York City. Um, I worked in a human rights clinic where I litigated cases with the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights. And I often felt, you know, like I'm doing the least, the least bad work I can do as a lawyer. It's pretty interesting. And I don't think I'm making things, you know, far worse. And, you know, in especially in the, when I was working with individual clients, this is something I continue to both struggle with and feel is really important that, you know, I was in representing people at that time, I was working with battered women who were seeking things like divorce or custody, sometimes immigration or housing support. And now I work mostly with people who are incarcerated in different forms of prison, whether it's immigration detention or what we might think of as an ordinary jail or prison. You know, I think doing 
individual legal services for people who are suffering and who are you know, dealing with the brunt of state violence, you know, that can be a form of really meaningful solidarity because those systems, whether it's poverty and patriarchal violence or it's incarceration, you know, really work to isolate people from their communities and their families and forms of social support. And so as a lawyer, you know, when you work for people and work with people in those contexts, the law is always stacked against you and the chances of winning something meaningful is very limited. And yet, again and again, I've kind of come back to this sobering realization that, you know, as an act of solidarity, it can be very meaningful. But anyways, when I was doing that work, it always, I always felt pretty frustrating and limited. And then now, in the last handful of years in particular, to see movements use law as a way to articulate a radical imagination, as a way to make very concrete these imaginations for different futures is really fascinating. So it's not just that you have, for example, movements articulating manifestos and that those are really gripping people. I mean, that probably is happening as well, but it's that the, you know, what you might think of as a manifesto of some sort is being articulated through a resolution introduced in Congress, like the Green New Deal, or like a wide ranging policy platform, like the Vision for Black Lives, and that that then becomes the tent for how we think about what we're fighting for and where we have the debates about what we're fighting for is really important and feels to me like a new kind of development, at least during my lifetime, in a way that's really exciting. The closest I can think of is generation ago when organizations like the Young Lords of the Black Panther Party had their 10-point programs, but they also had their free breakfast clinics, their free medical clinics, their freedom schools, where you could actually see in practice a different way of conducting one's life and, and having relationships within one's community. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think one of the things that was super interesting when I was studying the vision for Black Lives, you know, I had done my share of reading about the civil rights movement, the Black freedom struggle, but, you know, doing the contemporary work and because the movements and organizers I was working with took the history very seriously, I found myself kind of doing more study than I had in the past of these movements and these histories, and I continue to. And so one of the really profound things for me was to see that the vision for Black Lives is really echoing the Black Panther Party 10-point platform and the Young Lords 13-point platform. And I thought that was just, I mean, it was interesting because when, when I've talked about it with my students in my social movement seminar, which I haven't taught for a number of years, but the last time I did, you know, they, they found it, you know, kind of depressing, I think, in a way that the same demands are still relevant. But I think because, you know, my understanding of these systems is structural and historical and that, you know, we'll be fighting them for probably at least a few lifetimes, you know, there's a kind of beauty in that kind of resonance between the platforms, and of course, I don't think it's accidental. I think it's based on study and back for ancestors and past struggles in a way that I think is important and we can all learn from. On that note, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Michael. Please find us at raceandcapitalism.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at racecapitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.